Well, on behalf of Crossway, thank you for joining us. Thank you for choosing Jesus over Geno Smith. Uh, <laughs> sorry, I couldn't resist. Um, today, we will be in Romans chapter 5. We're continuing to look at uh, hope in this season as we approach Christmas, as we consider the hope that is extended to us by Christ from several angles. So I will uh, read uh, Romans 5, verses 1 through 5, and then we'll pray and we will dive into the sermon. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are grateful for your word. God, we are grateful for the opportunity to gather, to hear from you. God, we pray that your Holy Spirit speaks to us. Uh, in particular, God, those of us who maybe are having a, a hard season as we approach Christmas for um, so many different reasons. God, I pray that you uh, help us to hear the love that you have for us, the hope that you have for us. God, I pray that your Holy Spirit strengthens us. We come together before you in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. All right. So as a lot of you know, uh, my wife Jessica and I recently moved back to the Pacific Northwest after over a decade of ministry in Hawaii. My name is Eric, by the way. I've, apparently, I forgot to introduce myself last week, and then people were like, hey, great sermon. Who are you? But, so I'm Eric. I'm the new guy. Nice to meet you. But as I was saying, Hawaii. Uh, we lived on the island of Oahu, uh, never too far from the sunshine and the beach. And so what's interesting is more than anything else that we heard before we moved there, and while we lived there and came back on vacations, and when we met people who were there on vacation, and even after we moved back was, wow, Hawaii must be hard suffering for the Lord. <laughs> and yeah, I get it. It's funny. We praised God we weren't called to North Dakota. Um, but it's interesting. The year that we moved there, the movie came out uh, called The Descendants, and star it starred George Clooney. Uh, I can't in good conscience recommend the movie to you. However, the opening monologue was pretty powerful. As, as the film opens and you see scenes of the traffic and the homeless in the city of Honolulu, you hear George Clooney's voice saying, my friends on the mainland think that just because I live in Hawaii, I live in paradise like a permanent vacation. We're all just out here sipping Mai Tais, shaking our hips and catching waves. Are they insane? Do they think we're immune to life? How can they possibly think our families are less screwed up, our cancers less fatal, our heartaches less painful? 
And so it's true. We actually really thank God for our time in Hawaii. It was a blessing in a lot of ways. But I also assure you, not all of it felt like vacation. Um, We walked through hard seasons with friends, church members. We had loved ones pass away while we were out there. Uh, We went through surgeries. We went through uncertainty about work. We once even got an emergency alert sent to our cell phones that said, ballistic missile inbound to Hawaii, seek immediate shelter, this is not a drill. Thankfully, it wasn't a drill, it was a mistake. But still, not every day of our lives is an easy day, even in Hawaii. And I've only been here a couple of weeks, but I already know that a lot of you either have or are walking through seasons of hardship of various kinds, whether that's a cancer diagnosis or the death of a loved one or a broken relationship with a child or a parent or strains in your marriage, financial troubles, difficult bosses, conflict with neighbors, loneliness, fear, doubt, Last week, we spent some time looking at the book of Jeremiah together, and we considered what it had to say about the nature of biblical hope. And we learned that biblical hope finds its source in the promise of God rather than in the desires of our hearts. Often our desires aren't in themselves bad, but nevertheless, we set ourselves up for disappointment if we believe that our desires are going to steer our future rather than God's promises to us and his own goodness and faithfulness. Biblical hope trusts God, not our hearts or our dreams or our plans. But if you're like me and you've experienced difficult seasons in life, you might be tempted to question whether this biblical hope really serves us. After all, last week we saw that although Jeremiah had this message for the Jewish people in Jerusalem, nevertheless, the Babylonians still tore down their walls and hauled thousands of them away into slavery in a foreign country. I'm guessing that's not your story. But it would be foolish to think that you haven't walked through hard situations that have felt every bit as confusing and painful and frightening as that would have been to them. And if somehow you haven't, I hate to break it to you, one day you will. So what do we do at the moment of hardship? How does hope help us then? So the Apostle Paul wrote our text today to the church in Rome, only a couple of decades after Jesus' death and resurrection. Paul had never visited them, but he hoped to, And so he wrote this letter to encourage them to remain faithful. And so he spends the first part of the letter reminding them that they're saved by God's grace through their faith in Jesus' death and resurrection. And then he says this in verse 1 of chapter 5. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So the word justification means to be made right. Paul wants to assure them and us 
that we have been made right with God on account of our faith in Jesus. If you wanted to summarize the good news of the entire Bible, I'm not sure you could do a whole lot better than this verse, except maybe John 3.16. And yet notice what Paul says here about the end result of this standing with God. He says, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. One of the things that we need to remember when it comes to hope is that no matter how little peace we may feel like we have in the various areas of our life, we have peace with God. And that peace comes to us only through Jesus Christ, our Prince of Peace. That's what we celebrate at Christmas, right? This promise of the coming of Jesus. Isaiah 9, 6 says, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. God promises to Israel, as we saw last week, that he was going to put a righteous king on the throne and that that king's rule would never end. And now in Isaiah, we learn that this rule will be one that ultimately brings us peace. And that word peace is interesting, biblically speaking. So as pastors do, I read a lot of commentaries this last week getting ready for this sermon. And one of the things that I noticed was really interesting. Among these biblical scholars who wrote these commentaries, there was an opinion that was divided over the nature of peace. And so some felt that Paul meant peace in the Greek sense of the word since he was writing in Greek to a Greek-speaking church. And others thought that Paul meant peace in the Hebrew sense of the word since he was Jewish himself and he had trained to be a rabbi. So in Greek, the primary meaning of peace is an absence of conflict. In Hebrew, peace means fulfillment and God's blessing in all areas of our life. So which is it? I'm thinking, why can't it be both? See, our sin causes us to be in direct conflict with God. We rebel against his authority. We break his law. We choose to go our own way. But Jesus paid the punishment for our rebellion, for our sin, in his death on the cross. And he actually gives us his righteousness as a gift so that we are made right with God. And it brings an end to the conflict But doesn't God want so much more for us than just to stop us fighting against him? That brings us to the next verse. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. God's plan for us in Jesus is not merely to bring an end to the conflict that we have with God, but also to bring us into a new footing 
in our relationship with God, God intends for us to stand squarely in his grace. So what does grace mean? It means God granting his favor to us. For God's gaze to be a smile, not a frown. That sounds like peace in the Hebrew sense, doesn't it? Grace means God is predisposed to act generously toward us. Jesus, as the Prince of Peace, brings, it, brings us into a kingdom where our footing is secure and we are the recipients of his kindness, his blessing, the love of God the Father. But not only that, but our hope becomes tied to the glory of God. How exactly? So Paul in this letter to Romans actually gets to that a little further in, this, in the, uh, the course of his letter. So if you want to flip a couple pages, if you have your Bible open to chapter 8, Paul says in Romans 8, starting at verse 16, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him, in order that we may also be glorified with him. So, we said the first thing that we need to remember about biblical hope is that it assures that we have peace with God. Now, the second thing we need to remember about biblical hope is that it roots us in the promise that we're now God's children. The grace in which we stand is the favor that God extends to us no differently than he extends to his son, Jesus. Think about that. By means of the peace that Jesus brings, God extends to us his grace as if we're fellow heirs with Christ. Because we are. Don't miss that. That's important. Really important. We are heirs with Christ of the same glorious love and kindness and generosity that God the Father shows to Jesus. The Prince of Peace brings us into God's glory to stand in our new identity as God's kids. And we get to hope in the glory of that. Doesn't that sound like good news? I think it does. But there is the end of that sentence in verse 17. Let's look at it again. Provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Hmm. God in his wisdom shows us another little piece of the puzzle. The world in which we live is broken in a lot of ways, isn't it? In fact, I'm convinced that all of the hardships that we experience in this life result from the ways in which the world is broken. All of them. Either we suffer at the hands of other people's sins, or we suffer the consequences of our own sin, or we suffer from the brokenness that is present in creation itself, because of the curse 
God placed on it due to the fall. And it's important for us to recognize that we see all of these difficulties that we have as the result of sin because it helps us to understand how to exercise biblical hope faithfully. Because we often want an easy way out, don't we? I know I do. If I could choose, I would spend every day with that picture of Hawaii sitting on the beach, drinking a Mai Tai, snorkeling in the ocean, working on my tan. But biblical hope doesn't give us that immediate outcome, does it? What it does do is offer us something radically better. God could have snapped his fingers and made a happy ending like some kind of holy fairy tale. It would have been within his power as the creator of all things to do. And instead, God chooses to do something that's even more profound. God comes down to experience the brokenness with us. He doesn't ignore our sufferings. He chooses to embrace our sufferings in a death grip that will ultimately destroy them forever. And he does that by becoming a helpless infant laying in a manger, by living a life full of hardship, just like all the rest of us have, and then dying an unjust death for undeserving people because even though they're broken, he loves them. Because even though we're broken, he loves us. So he chooses to suffer for us. Think about that for a moment. So if that's the bigger context, let's continue with what Paul's trying to teach us about both hope and suffering in this text. Picking up at verse 3. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. I got to be honest, rejoicing in my sufferings is not my natural response. Jessica can confirm that. But similarly, I know that my very human tendency would be to try to just short-circuit God completely and instead plan my own way to a future that was full of pleasure and comfort and security. I'm guessing a lot of you left to your own devices would want to do the same thing. And yet... What Paul's trying to communicate here, and what more importantly I think we need to understand about God's attitude toward us and our suffering, stands out in two really interesting things that I think we have to kind of take hold of and think through. So the first one is that our suffering shapes us to be more like Jesus, who walked a path of suffering for our sake so that we could share in God's glory as brothers and sisters. 
we become soft-hearted and sympathetic and able to love other people as a result of walking through these hard seasons. And it makes us more like Jesus in the process. It makes us better able to love our neighbor the way that Jesus modeled for us. But second, God uses our suffering to actually build up our hope. How does that happen? The best example I can give you is your muscles. How do muscles get stronger? Motivational posters? (laughs) Eating more? I wish. The power of positive thinking? No, they get stronger by facing resistance and overcoming it. As you lift weights or you run, the resistance of gravity causes strain, which signals your body that it needs more muscle for next time. And so your body builds muscle to increase your endurance. As the weightlifters say, no pain, no gain. It's not a perfect analogy, but I think it gives us a little bit of a picture of this interrelationship between suffering and endurance and character and hope that Paul ties together in this passage. God intends for those of us who trust him to grow in our hope that his promises are true and grow in our confidence that he will be faithful to fulfill all of those promises that he makes to us. How does that happen? It happens in times of hardship when your hope gets put to the test. When it encounters that resistance that forces you to press in to Jesus, that forces you to trust that God will be who he says he will be. And as you endure, not only do you become more sympathetic, in other words, it produces a character that's more like Jesus, but you also trust God more. And as a result, your hope grows. Biblical hope grows in the garden of adversity. We talked about Jeremiah last week. And the most famous book, or most famous verse in the book of Jeremiah says, For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. And we can buy that on t-shirts and coffee mugs everywhere Christian stuff is sold, right? We like that verse, but we don't always think about the context of that verse. That verse is true, but it comes in a context that is so much deeper and so much richer and so important for us to understand as we contemplate it. Right before Jeremiah says this to God's people, he breaks the news to them that they are going to be in Babylon for a very long time. And because of that, they shouldn't hesitate to get married and have kids and plant gardens and work hard. Because, as he said, God knows the plans that he has for them. Plans for hope and a future. So that's the third thing we need to know about biblical hope. Not only do we trust that we will forever be at peace with God 
and that we are forever his children, but we also learn in these verses that hope actually grows out of hardship. When we see God's faithfulness in one hard season, it helps us in the next hard season. And again, we're going to jump ahead a little to Romans 8 because Paul talks about this idea a little bit more. In verse 18, he says, For I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. I'm going to jump ahead to 23. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we await eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. What is Paul talking about here? He's talking about that hope that we have. We're already adopted as kids, but we're also waiting for that to come into its fullness and its fruition in God's kingdom. It's natural for us not to enjoy suffering. We were not designed to suffer. Sin brought it into the world and into our experience. But it's equally important to recognize that suffering is not our only destiny. That's not where we're headed. That's, that's not the end. And it feels so hard when we're in the midst of a suffering season to think that this is all that it's going to be, that we're only going to be stuck in this space where we feel the suffering and the pain and the confusion and the sorrow and the fear. And without minimizing any of that, Paul says, in comparison to what's ahead, you need to understand. It's almost like a passing bad dream before we awake in the daylight to recognize how much God has in store for us. In fact, Paul says in these verses in in chapter 8 that all of creation groans for that day. Isn't that interesting? Not only will the curse be lifted from our shoulders, but all of creation is going to find its new renewed purpose. It's going to find its fulfillment as we begin to be who God has made us to be in this new kingdom. That means... We no longer will treat ourselves or each other or creation in the hurtful and callous and selfish ways that we so often do now. And yet we get to start practicing that today in the hope that when God says that that one day we will live that way forever is is coming. It's sure we can be dependent on it. That's the hope that Paul encourages us to rejoice over in these hard times. It's not to rejoice because suffering is great. It's to rejoice because suffering actually serves a purpose to shape us, to not only be more Christ-like, but to be more hopeful. The hope that our faith calls us to press into during hardship and seasons of pain and sorrow Don't get 
a shortcut. Instead, they allow us to experience the fullness of God as he is faithful to his character. Because Jesus knows our pain. Because the Holy Spirit resides within us, giving us strength to endure it. And God the Father promises us future glory. And as we continue a couple more verses in Romans chapter 8, we find that our salvation and this hope are actually really bound up together. Paul says in verse 24, For this hope, for in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Exercising our hope requires patience. Why? I think it's because patience admits that we're not in control. God's in control, so we wait for him. My wife came across a quote earlier this week from uh, a German pastor named Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He was uh, sitting in jail, awaiting his fate. He opposed the Nazi government. He opposed Adolf Hitler's reign. He actually was a part of an underground movement to attempt to uh, remove Hitler from power. He was ultimately killed for this resistance against this great evil. And from a prison cell, he wrote, a prison cell in which one waits, hopes, and is completely dependent on the fact that the door of freedom has to be opened from the outside is not a bad picture of Advent. Hope requires patience because we're not in control. God is. So in this season, as we head toward Christmas, even if the season feels heavy and hard for you right now, I want to encourage you that your patience and your hope, or sorry, your patience and your endurance give your hope a workout that makes your trust in God's promises stronger. That's part of what our waiting at Christmas reminds us of. It reminds us that God's the one who is ultimately in control. So how does Paul wrap up his encouragement to us in chapter 5? Verse 5 says, And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured out in our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Your ability to rejoice in the hope of the glory of God as well as your ability to rejoice in your sufferings come from the deep love that God has for you. And the strength to do so comes from his spirit who is present within you. That power of the spirit has so much more power than we give it credit for. Elsewhere, Paul says, it's the same power that rose Jesus Christ from the dead. That's the same power that we have present in us through the gift of the Holy Spirit. 
And God's love actually runs deeper than we can imagine. Paul concludes Romans 8 by saying that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. That is the hope that we confess together as Christians, as God's kids, as believers in the first coming of King Jesus in a manger in the town of Bethlehem, as well as in his glorious second coming to bring our hope to its fulfillment in his kingdom where peace will have no end. So we closed our service last week by reading Hebrews 10.23 out loud together, and I actually think it's worthwhile for us to keep this verse present in our minds this Christmas season. So let's read it out loud together one more time, and then we'll close in prayer. We got it up on the screen there? All right. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your faithfulness. Lord, we thank you that your hope does not put us to shame because of the love that you have poured into our hearts, because of the spirit that you have given to us that allows us to endure suffering, knowing that it shapes us to be more like Jesus, more sympathetic, more loving ourselves. And because it actually increases our hope, it strengthens the trust that we have in you. God, we're grateful that you love us so very much that you would do those things for us so that we can be confident and feel with even more excitement that day when you set all of these promises into the reality that we will live in forever. For this we thank you. We pray in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.